Let's hit it. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a wave. Surfing. Give me a city tour. The trolley. Give me animals. The zoo. Give me some sea life. <laughs> Give me museums. Park. Give me a woo. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. My simple solution to the problem was remove people from the scene and help them feel safer. In response to attacks against Asian Americans, Maddie Park raised over $250,000 to donate cab rides to the Asian community. There is so much more work to be done. We really need to come together and tackle this issue as a community. Support the Asian community. Learn how at lovehasnolabels.com. Brought to you by Love Has No Labels and the Ad Council. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. I love fish. Uh, I love to cook fish. I love to eat fish. And, you know, the closest thing I've ever had to a signature dish is a tuna dish that I started doing back when I was at at. Mondrian even, which goes, you know, predates Gramercy Tavern. I was 26 years old when I was the, the executive chef there. And I came up and this was kind of the first, one of the first dishes that I actually put together, you know, that was mine, meaning that I put it together working in, in a kitchen that I was the chef in. It was one of the first things I put on a menu. And it was, it was during, you know, it was the 90s. So steer tuna was all the rage. I cut the tuna, not across the grain, but kind of with the grain and cut it into these kind of we call them little bricks. And I would coat the tuna in black peppercorns and sear it on pretty high heat. It was still rare. And you know, it was the 90s. So rare tuna was in. And so it got me to, to start thinking like the fish that is mostly associated with slavery in the oceans is tuna. How do I know the tuna that I'm purchasing that I purchased back then when I was you know, doing the signature dish. And how do I know the tuna that I'm purchasing now is not actually caught by people that are enslaved on fishing vessels to catch the tuna and other fish that, that we're consuming? I'm Tom Colicchio, and you're listening to Citizen Chef. We're going to have that discussion today. I grew up fishing. I started fishing when I was about five with my grandfather. and It was mostly crabbing and, and uh, clamming and things like that. And then I graduated to fishing for trout with a fly rod. We used to fish mostly in the Barnegat Bay in New Jersey. Uh, our, our little boat that we had was in Tom's River. We used to have to go pretty far out near uh, the Barnegat Lighthouse to do our clamming. Something about being out in the middle of the ocean when the sun is coming up, you know, somewhere between 30 to 80 miles offshore. Um... There's a certain sense of adventure. There's a certain sense of the vastness of the ocean. You know, catching a fish is just a bonus. It's just kind of being in that environment where, you know, if you step off that boat, you are no longer at the top of the food chain. There's, there's something about that just that, that puts your whole life into perspective. So it is hard to believe that in the 21st century, we are still having concerns uh, over whether our food was produced by enslaved people. But if you're eating chocolate or seafood, chances are slave labor was involved in the early stages of its production. So we're going to hear from someone who could walk us through the supply chain. Some of them children, some of them prevented from escaping the workplace, all of them working for little or nothing. 
We'll discuss why corporations can't seem to bring themselves to clean up their labor practices and how you, the consumer, and chefs like me can end slavery on the seas. So it's very hard to say, okay, I'm just going to stop eating one type of fish because the slaves are on those boats. It's more complicated. Taiwanese tuna longliners are really bad news. Toothfish in Antarctica are bad news for other reasons. But a lot of fish meal-fed aquaculture are really bad news. So it's a very complicated field and why I sort of always defer to the Monterey Bay Aquariums to give advice. Okay. Sorry to that, complicate that was, that was even That was even <laughs> awesome. Yeah. I'm talking to uh, uh, Ian Urbina. Good to meet you. About his time that he spends in international waters, which I find really, really interesting how a, a reporter sort of ends up on these ships, these long line ships and and sort of tracks down poachers and, and slavers and uh, a bunch of other characters doing a lot of misdeeds on the, on the open oceans. Uh, you have been writing about this. How did you get into tracking down the pirates on the open oceans and, and slavery? How did you come to this? So I've been on staff for 17 years at the New York Times as an investigative reporter, was procrastinating, finishing my dissertation one cold Chicago winter and decided to take a job far away working as an anthropologist on a research vessel uh, that was anchored in Singapore. The vessel never left port, went there, sat around for three months, and I ended up finding an inordinate amount of time surrounded by seafarers. And sort of as a good anthropologist, I was kind of riveted by this um, diaspora tribe of uh, relatively invisible workers that, you know, deliver us 90% of the goods we consume and, you know, live this kind of crazy life with its own language and laws and customs. And, and, um, and these were all across the map. These were Kiwi, New Zealand deckhands who worked for Geraldo Rivera on his super yacht all the way over to, you know, debt bonded um, Indonesian 15-year-old guys on a Taiwanese tuna longliner, all anchored in the same port. And so just that exposure to these people of which there are 56 million working out there at sea at any given moment, you know, just blew my mind. And I always harbored this uh, aspiration to um, anthropologically or journalistically go back to that world and tell their stories. So, how how does one end up on a slave ship? Yeah, so just um, to, to pull the helicopter up at altitude for one second and just if you think of the sea space, the two-thirds of the planet, that is water, you, you, you know, from a worker perspective, it's important to draw a dichotomy. Merchant marine, those are the guys and it's a very male world um, uh, that bring us stuff. You know, These are oil freighters, wheat, grain, container ships, night Nikes, iPhones, all that stuff right. is the merchant marine. It's a whole different universe. They're mostly there's a good union presence. Their wages, their contracts. It's you know hugely automated. So the kinds of crimes, dumping of oil, pretty serious problem in that realm. Mm-hmm. But human rights abuses, labor abuses, not as much. Then this right. other side of the dichotomy is the fishing fleet. There are more boats out there. There are more people working on it, and the conditions are hugely variable. You know, um, super well financed tuna longliners from the U.S. are in one echelon. And then, you know, Taiwanese tuna longliners running from Cape Town to Montevideo in a whole different echelon. Now, in that echelon, that lower rank on the the ladder is where you see the problem of sea slavery. Uh, And it's not just in the South China Sea. It's off the coast of Ghana, off the coast of the Falkland Islands. And these are poor ships. They're typically... So, in the South China Sea, which is a quintessential model, you have a 
a ship that has a crew of 45 guys. Five of them are Thai. It's a Thai flagged vessel. It's port in Songkla, Thailand. It fishes all the way over maybe near Bangladesh or Somalia. So it goes really far away. The mm-hmm. crew is five officers. They're typically the native um, ethnicity and language. So Thai and the, and the deckhands, the 35, 40 others are typically non native, right? So these are Indonesians, Loatians, Cambodians. They're typically trafficked. So they've been illegally brought in the, uh, into the country in Thailand. And they're as young as 13, as old as 40. I think that they're headed for a construction job, but on the way with their trafficker, they realize, wait, that's actually not where I'm headed. And right. so, so, so there's traffickers late. that bring them in just similar to what a coyote would do, um, smuggling humans across the border uh, here. In Thailand, in yeah. States. yeah. Yeah. And Got in it. other countries, it's manning agencies. These are actually companies. Right. And so is there a contract between the fishing vessel and the trafficker? A written contract in the term you're using? No. I'm trying to think of the contract in two different directions. The Cambodian from the small village who meets the guy who's a labor broker, or as you or I would call a trafficker, he has a verbal contract with the worker, which is, hey, I can get you a good job. Come with me. Don't worry about the fact that you don't have any money. We'll work that out later. And mm-hmm. there's a there's a contract there. And that's one contract. And then the labor broker or trafficker, that guy with the pickup truck and the chain of other folks along the way and a friend at the border and all that, that guy also then has a contract with the boat captain or someone downstream from him does. Hmm. And the contract is, hey, wait, it costs me 200 US to bring per head these 10 guys to you. So you now owe me what I spent to bring them to you. The captain pays the trafficker. Now the captain owns those guys, right? Because they mm-hmm. have a debt that's been passed to him. And that's where the human slavery aspect, the debt bondage process comes on. The guys get on the boat and then they off, they go out to sea. And it's different from debt bondage in brick factories in India or garment factories in Bangladesh. Um, they, these guys on the boat then go beyond the horizon, right? And so the notion of them actually having accounting and working towards the debt being paid off is a joke, much more right. so than in a factory that's located in a country where they can run to the police or whatnot. Right. So they're, they're stuck on these, on these ships. And, and these ships, they stay out for how long? Anywhere from three months to three years. Uh, some of the ships that are out there for three years are what you call involved in transshipment. So they are fishing mm-hmm. vessels that just keep fishing. And then a mother ship comes out, brings them ice, fuel, parts, men, and brings the fish back to shore. But the fishing vessel keeps shipping. And that's those are the vessels. Those vessels are the ones that have the most acute sea slavery issues for obvious reasons. They're staying out there. And for a right. good reason, they don't want the guys to run. Are, are there any treaties to try to stop this? How do they get away with this? I mean, they're international water. So there's, I guess there's, there's fewer laws there. But how are they getting away with this? Fairly easily. I mean, the, the, you know, the, the laws are only as good as their enforcement, right? And so the further you get from shore, the fewer cops there are. You know, even in national waters in most of the world, most countries don't have navies anymore. And most of the countries where these economics are most acute don't have navies or even coast guards or vessels or the budget for the fuel or the men or the training to go out and police. And if they're going to police, they're policing things that affect that country's bottom line, which is our foreign vessels stealing our fish. They're not looking out for labor crimes of third party, you know, other poor people from other place in the world. That's not their main mission. And so even if they're seeing stuff, they're not really, they don't have an apparatus for doing anything about it. 
that's in national waters. Now go to international waters, it's even more so the case. So it's it's a kind of thing that it's um, very easy to get away with. I think in some ways, the more promising front are the market players. So big buyers, you know, Walmart and the EU. And um, they're saying, look, we don't want to be sullied by being complicit in slave labor. So we want better supply chain transparency and accountability. And so they're saying, if you want to sell tuna or shrimp or whatever to us, you have to show us a bunch of things that reassure us that you're not involved. Right. And what, what are they? What is the tracking of the, of the fish? I mean, can it be tracked? Yeah, I mean it's expensive and and it, but it can it certainly can be done, but it just means some things have to go away. So one of the things we talked about was at sea transshipment, you know, where you're offloading your catch to a mothership, that's got to go away. That fish, you're Mr. Walmart, right? And you've got a guy at the port and he wants to make sure that the fish coming in is not coming off of slave vessels. But if it's getting transshipped, it's getting dumped onto a mothership with seven other ships. Yeah, it's a fungible so, commodity yeah, at that point. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah so sure, that's got to sure. go away. Again, stupid. But Mr. Walmart, like we need to know uh, every ship that's producing uh, fish for us, we need to know they have a license plate. We know their registry number. They have a crew manifest. Maybe they have onboard cameras or a human observer. Uh, they have their VMS or AIS, the transponders that tell mm-hmm. where they are at all times on. Um, that data is not just accessible to the corrupt government officials that are local and getting paid off by whatever. They're also accessible to Global Fishing Watch and other advocacy or watchdog groups that can watch and see, wait, that ship is zigzagging in a certain way that shows it's fishing for 40 straight hours. That's a no-no red flag. You need to check on that. Or they're in a zone they're not allowed to be in or you know, these sorts of algorithmic Things coupled with satellite technology can start spotting risky vessels. All this is possible. It's going to cost, right? And it's going to get right. passed down to the consumer. Can of tuna is going to go up 50 cents. People are going to complain, but, you know, human rights cost. I mean, do you think we'll start seeing, uh, you know, the, the equivalent of dolphin safe tuna, human safe tuna on cans? Is, is that what it's going to come to? I think so. I mean, and that's a flawed system, but it's better than what used yeah. to exist. Uh, and mm-hmm. uh, But that's probably what's going to have to happen. And it's going to have to happen not in these boutique little kind of PR play side games, but like big players, Walmart, EU, the US government, like big purchasers of bulk, they're going to have to say, okay, let's deal with this. And um, right. if they do it, then the whole market will shift because- How, how, much, you, of that do you, how much of that do you think it would be consumer driven with a, a, a good you know, marketing or messaging campaign that actually would get the the, the end buyer, the, the, you know, the consumer on board and demanding this? Because that's how a lot of the stuff happens. I don't know. You know Walmart may want to be a good player here, but, but most, most people won't. You know, yeah. you got millions of fish stores across the country. They're not going to track this down. Yeah, Walmart's, uh, you know, probably sells more fish than anyone. But, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of my, you know, I'm in a small little uh, sort of on the North Fork on Long Island right now. And I know of two uh, fish stores that, that sell a ton of fish and I, I don't see them tracking it. Has, has this caught the, the eye of uh, organizations like Human Rights Watch or Amnesty International? Uh, is there a role for them to play as well? Human Rights Watch, in fact, in Thailand was um, amazing. The guy who runs the office there for Human Rights Watch was super involved in the sea slavery reporting and and has been very involved in this because it's a fundamental human rights issue. So, Amnesty, I've not had personal experience with them on this stuff. I don't think they're in this space. But Greenpeace, Environmental Justice Foundation, to some degree, Sea Shepherd, but they're kind of Mm -hmm. a different sort of outfit. But those first ones really... um, Human Rights Watch, EJF, and Greenpeace don't just document and help journalists and do all sorts of stuff like that. They also have a a strategic 
policy agenda that those advocates are following to do pressure campaigns to get the EU to yellow card Cambodia and Thailand because they have these problems or to change US law so that illegal fish isn't defined as stuff that was caught in zones or not allowed to be in. It was also illegal fish because it was caught by slaves. Like right. the, the, you need policy lobby, you know, stakeholders that are going to be involved in not just the shame campaign that the press can do uh, that affects some consumers, but also the behind the doors pressuring and teaming up in odd ways. Like, you know, um, the U.S. tuna industry um, has really well-paid lobbyists. It's a big money market and they have their own self-interest to want to bang up the foreign tuna guys who are using right. or gaming the system by using cheap later. So, Greenpeace can team up with the tuna lobby in the U.S. on stuff like this. So, there's all sorts of weird bed partners that can come together around shared interest and to some degree it's happening. You mentioned Sea Shepherd. Uh, have they uh, tried to disrupt the sort of the handoff between the transshipment vessels and the, and the motherships? Are they doing any of that? Because I, I know that's the work they do. They actually get between whalers and, and whale pods. And have they tried to disrupt this flow? These days, a lot of what they're doing is ride along patrols. And I was on one of them just recently off the coast of West Africa, where they're going to poor nations like the type I described um, that don't have the ability to police their own waters. And Sea Shepherd's bringing in their big Navy vessels. You know, folks say the critics of these campaigns say this is a Sea Shepherd fundraising for its bottom line. And these are really short term band aids on deep rotting problems because once she shepherd leaves what changes um the flip side is it gets attention by big funders and media attention and sort of um does help capacity build for the core nations and you know they've arrested 50 vessels in the last two years in you know half dozen different countries so you know whichever side you take there is a perspective could, could you see a system, I guess, if there is an upper tier and they are fishing with the correct gear, there's the, you know, the, the workers are getting paid, could, could that um, catch be pulled out and tagged as safe? And then the assumption is the rest of the stuff that's not is illegal or used uh, you know, slavery to, to catch that fish? Yeah. I mean, then you could impose a system in which this is the high road, you know, vetted supply chain. It costs more, but it comes with the reassurance of it was, you know, uh, and those would be tagged in a certain way. And then those that weren't that, that don't get that certification. This is the regime of certified whatever, right? So you think of sweat free garments, think of blood mm -hmm, diamonds, sure. think of dolphin free tuna. You know, there's, there's a precedent. We'll be right back. Check the back seat. Check the back seat. Check the back seat. Gets in your head, right? Good. Because every year, dozens of children are forgotten in the backseat of a car by a parent or caregiver. All never thought it could happen to them. But with changes in routines, distractions, or a sleeping child, it can happen to anyone. Parked cars get hot fast and can be deadly. So get it in your head. Check the back seat. A message from NHTSA and the Ad Council. Hey, it's Zuko and Kayla from The Wake Up Call. Enjoy your podcast, but when you're done, don't forget about us. We have a radio show. We try to bring a smile to your face every morning. We also talk to some of the hottest country stars of today, and we like to share some good news with That's What I Like. Because Lord knows that's hard to find. When you're done podcasting your podcast, listen to us at 92.3 WCOL. Set your preset on your radio right now, and don't forget you can listen to us online on the iHeartRadio app. 
let's let's focus on the human condition for a second. We you know, we, we uh, kind of outlined how uh, these workers, indentured servants, get on the ship. What are the, what are the conditions on this? You spent time on the, on some of these ships. Is that correct? Yeah, I did. Okay. What what are the conditions there like? Uh, awful. You know, I, I've covered in the last two decades coal mining, truck driving, sex work by teens in the U.S. and you know, pretty rough industries and. Um, I'd never seen conditions like those on these vessels. Um, they're, they're awful in many ways. One, just the sense of remove, the pure geography of being, you know, invisible in several ways, undocumented, far from shore, et cetera. The hours are sort of Dickensian, you know, just, uh, be, blow the mind, having spent a week on one where I saw guys were working 20 hour days every single day for the whole time I was there. Um, the, this is an industrial, seriously industrial, workspace, you know, that has 40 guys crammed into a small space with heavy, dangerous machinery running 20 straight hours in the dark of night on insanely slippery ice skating rink-like surface that's moving up and down like an elevator across four stories at all times and shifting back and forth. These guys are barefoot, sleep deprived, and pulling 500 ton, you know, nets that are a mile round. And some of them are actually getting in the water to fix issues in the nets in the dark of night. You know, and so it's just like the the possibility of infection. These are rat and roach infested, you know, vessels. Um, the possibility of you know getting cut by the nets, and these guys have wounds at all times. There are no antibiotics, there are amphetamines as much as you want, but no <laughs> sure. antibiotics on board. Right. You never get your skin dry. Um, the possibility to get you know an arm cut off or knocked overboard by some big winch or spinning thing is real. So the conditions are are really brutal. And that doesn't even get into the violence um, and the sort of strict military hierarchy. You know, I, I saw some of the pictures that your photographer took and these are these are children. These aren't adult men. These aren't, you know, men in their twenties and thirties. These are these are kids. Yeah. One vessel that we spent the longest time, which was as I described, five Cambodian officers and forty um, all trafficked crew. Uh, there was a kid there had been a year on board and he was not a day older than 13. Huh. Um, so obviously you can't get off the ship. You can't complain. And, and I mean, did you have better conditions to live in than, than the, the fishermen? I mean, how, how, did you, how did you deal with this for, for that length of time? So on the sea slavery reporting, you know, we were to get to those vessels, the ones that are really far from shore and are transshipping and are staying off, mm -hmm. those are two, three, four hundred miles from shore and we couldn't get anyone to take us out that far. So we had to hopscotch, hire a guy to take us 50 miles out, talk our way onto another boat. These guys are all fishing, men, you know, fishermen who are like, oh, well, I'll take you 50 miles, but you got to pay me this amount. And so we hopscotch sure. 50 at a time out to get out three, four hundred. And then on that last boat, this is our boat. This is the demographic. Then we stay there for a week and then try to find our way back. And those boats, you're, you're living just like them, you know, and, and in the book really? we describe, you know, making some stupid mistakes on the front end, like, you know, why do these guys sleep in hammocks built of nets in a room that's only three feet from the ground and they're only about a foot off the ground? Why not just sleep on the ground? Rats. Well, we figure out, yeah, we, we finally went to sleep and slept under them and we got covered in rats. You know, um, I ate what they ate, which is usually barely boiled squid and rice. Right. Um, right. and, uh, and I stay out of their way and kind of document. My understanding is that these are not only brutal conditions to work in, um, but it, it's, it, you know, the, the thugs that, that run these crews, um, care very little for human life. Uh, there's, 
they're in constant fear of being murdered, not not just being disciplined, but actually being murdered. There's a go-between the officers and the crew, and, and, and who is that person, and what do they do, what are they responsible for? The, the go-between is someone called the bosun, and the bosun is typically the ethnicity of the crew, but loyal to, paid by, and speaks the language of the officers. So on a Thai ship, the bosun's going to be Thai, but the bosun's going to speak Khmer, or Loatian, or Burmese, or you know whatever is the language of the crew. And their the key job is to run the crew. They're paid well. They're very loyal. They've worked there a long time. The officers trust them. They provide intel on the mood, and they also are the ones who administer the discipline. And the discipline is performative. And just to sort of play the true journalist anthropological role for a second, if you take and try to understand the perspective of the captain, these guys are often dirt poor, scared to death, work equally long, crazy hours, make very little money themselves. And, you know, the line between victimizer and victim is um, pretty murky in these spaces, um, which is not to say murder and beatings and rape are okay in any conditions, but understanding that part of the discipline that occurs, the violence sometimes culminating in murder that occurs is um, if it's a bit like a slave plantation, you know, if you, if slave, there are four slave owners, yeah, they've got guns, but if there are 40 younger, fitter and outnumbering slaves, those guys, if they team up, can mutiny on a ship very effectively. Mm-hmm. And they do sometimes. They do. They have their bit. Ha- okay. Oh yeah. And they're, you know, now how much is lore the captains love to talk about and how much is true hard to discern, but there are well-documented cases of awful, you know, mutinies where the, you know, not illegitimately the crew rise up, overthrow the officers and take the ship elsewhere. So the bosun's job is to make sure they stay on top of that. And oftentimes how they do so is they establish a brutality very quick and very early on. Varies, you know, um, some do. Uh, um, they get a lump sum paid in a wad of cash as they d- disembark. And in some ways, it's kind of, look, I'm letting you go, but keep your mouth shut. I know where you mm-hmm. are. You know, here's some money. It's never what is owed. I mean, sure. um, uh, in this realm, you know, there are whole mm-hmm. other tiers, right? Where they're, mm-hmm. where fishermen are paid legitimately, their stuff wired home. And I don't want to act like it's all this realm, but in this realm, sure. but a lot of them, um, uh, don't get paid and they decide to escape and they never get paid because they run away. Right. Um, so you wrote, uh, about one, uh, uh fisherman in particular, uh, a gentleman named Langlon. Um, can you talk to me about his plight and, uh, uh, I guess he was on boat for three years. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah, he was sold yeah. boat to boats. Um, yeah, so he's kind of a quintessential case. Cambodian, very poor, small village, no time at sea. Meets a guy at a religious festival. Guy says, "Can get you a job in Thailand." Thailand, remember, is a middle class country, less than two percent unemployment. Right. Thais don't do these crap jobs. The women are not in the sex industry, and the and the Thai men are not predominantly working the jobs in boats. Those are migrant workers, um, surrounded by Laos, Cambodia, Myanmar, desperately poor, war-torn areas. Um, so there's a big inflow of, um, uh, labor. Uh, Lang Long gets approached, offered a construction job. Meet me on Sunday. I'll get you in. I know a guy at the border, et cetera. You know, begins his route in along the way. Other folks are getting picked up. They're being housed at these, uh, upstairs sections of, karaoke bars or their brothels as they're working their way towards their ultimate arrival. It takes a couple of weeks. Um, he gets to the port, realizes he's not headed for construction. Again, don't forget, he doesn't speak a lick of Thai. 
He has no clue what's going on. He just knows that scarier and scarier guys are sort of getting involved at each step of the way. And now he's being marched onto a boat. He gets marched onto a boat. Off they go. He has no idea what the terms are or anything. He's just sort of going where told. They go off to sea. Langlong is terrible at it. You know, he can't discern between the fish. He, he's beaten for messing things up. He's seasick all the time. He's scared. Uh, and at one point, a mothership comes near and Langlong decides to try to go for it. He jumps overboard, tries to swim. Uh, they catch him, bring him back. From then forward, Langlong is shackled by the neck whenever he's not working. And that's how he gets noticed by a subsequent mothership that came and had some workers on it that noticed a guy shackled. Most of these guys know the deal and they don't open their mouth when they get back to short. But this one guy was new to this line of work and was disturbed and, and spoke Khmer and had a few words with Langlong and found out and when he got back to shore, he went to a, a, an amazing, you know, human rights group uh, that works on this stuff and said, I saw something. And that began a three month process whereby they raised money to buy Langlong's freedom. It took a long time. Langlong had been sea for a while and he was sold between boats. This was the last or second to last boat, but they kept track of him. What was the price of his freedom? The price? Yeah. 700 US. 700 US. Yeah. Oh God! Um, yeah, I mean, I, I <laughs> in talking to you, it's it's um, you know, as someone who uh, a lot of tuna runs through my restaurant, um, uh, I, I start to think, you know, am I complicit in this somehow? Um, uh, not not purposely complicit, um, but um, you know, perhaps that's that's where. Um, you know, restaurateurs and chefs maybe maybe can get behind this to create that campaign. We we did it years ago with swordfish. There was a campaign to get swordfish off of plates, and it worked really well. I mean, that and the fact that you know there was a nursery that was found off the coast of Florida. They closed down along lines, and uh, the swordfish came back. It's a great success story of managing the fisheries. And I mean, I've, now they're trying to get some of those long lines back in there. Um, but uh, I'm wondering if if that's where um, a campaign needs to start. Um, yes. Uh, no, I think you agree, you agree with that. <laughs> yeah, no, I think your instinct is first of all, I would say that we're all complicit. You know, you're not more yeah. complicit than me, and we can never get outside of this. We can just sort of work towards minimizing our involvement. But I do think that chefs and and people like you, kind of in the border between chefs and and media folks, have a distinct power to begin to mobilize. Uh, in ways that actually will get noticed by buyers upstream and customers downstream. And there are places out there, Greenpeace does some good stuff, Monterey Bay Aquarium is starting to take slavery stuff into their rankings that can advise, hey, look, I want to, I, I know it'll cost more and I'm going to have to change my menu, but how can I avoid places, Taiwanese two longliners, bad news, you know, like don't get any tuna from those guys and, and figure out what companies are making sure that they know enough to know that they're not going anywhere near that. It takes some work, especially on this front end of the education curve. But um, there's no one better than chefs to, who are literate and cultured and want to have change as they're doing their culinary art. Um, so yeah, I think I think that's a big place where things could could happen. Well, this has been fascinating. Thank you. Um, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Um, I'm talking to Ian Urbina. Uh, he's an investigative journalist with the New York Times and. Um, author of Outlaw Ocean. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Ian. Thank you so much. A lot of this has to do with where we are right now and, and 
Looking at what's happened with, with George Floyd's death and, and, and this idea that it's not enough to be not to be racist, but you have to actually work at being anti-racist, making sure that you are with intention, making sure that you are doing uh, everything you can to, to be a good ally. And I don't want to equate fish to people, but the idea that if you are not actively seeking fish that is not produced with slavery, are you somewhat being complicit? Um, because once you know, then you can't hide your head in the sand anymore. You can't just say, well, I, I, I think I sourced from good places. You have to make sure that the fish that you are buying is, is, is not produced from using people who are enslaved. And so, uh, so I, I think that it's easy to sort of link the two together. We have to do more than just say, uh, I don't know. That's not enough. I, I think that there's been such a movement, um, you know, over the last 10 years, uh, this food movement where people want to know who their farmer is. They want to know who's growing the chicken. Uh, maybe they have some backyard chickens and they're, 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 you know, producing their own eggs. And, uh, you know, they want to know the actual particular breed of a zucchini. And so uh, I find there's, there's such an interest in food, but I don't think people realize that uh, the, f- the fish uh, on their plate could have been sort of fished on a boat that actually has slaves on board. That there are people that are on a ship for long periods of time and people don't know about, don't talk about it. So how, how are Americans contributing to this problem when they dine on seafood? You know, how can consumers help end slavery? I think you have to ask questions. I think you have to ask that restaurant, you know, do you know the sources of your fish? You know, once you know, is it enough to say, well, I think I'm buying from a good source. Or do you really have to actually ask those questions? You, you simply ask the, the fishmonger, you know, do you know who caught this fish? I know when I go down to my local guy here in, in uh, the South Hold Fish Market here in, in Long Island, I can actually ask Charlie, um, you know, who brought this fish in? And he'll tell you the boat. And he'll tell you who did it. And, and didn't come from some large, he doesn't buy from these large companies. He buys from local fishermen. It would be great if there was an agency sort of making sure that that the fish that we purchase in this country does not involve slavery. That's the very least that I think our government can do. Thanks again to Ian Urbina for taking us into the world of captives on the sea. I mean, he literally spent time on these these ships and on these boats, so uh, I really wanted us to hear from him. Special thanks to Kristen Castry and Lori Silverbush from A Place at the Table. Citizen Chef with me, Tom Colicchio, is a production of iHeartMedia. Christopher Hasiotis is our executive producer. Jesslyn Shields is our researcher. And Gabrielle Collins is our producer. Thanks again for listening to Citizen Chef. My simple solution to the problem was remove people from the scene and help them feel safer. In response to attacks against Asian Americans, Maddie Park raised over $250,000 to donate cab rides to the Asian community. There is so much more work to be done. We really need to come together and tackle this issue as a community. Support the Asian community. Learn how at lovehasnolabels.com. Brought to you by Love Has No Labels and the Ad Council. It's the Breakfast Club, the world's most dangerous morning show. Hey! Angela E is kind of like the big sister that always pokes you in the forehead. <laughs> 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 
That's not how it goes? That's not how anything goes. Yemi's really like a robot. One of the best DJs ever. Believe that. Charlamagne is the wild card. And I'm about to give somebody the credit they deserve for being stupid. I know that's right. <laughs> what is wrong with you? <laughs> Listen to The Breakfast Club weekday mornings from 6 to 10 on 106.7 The Beat. Columbus is real hip-hop and R&B.